नमस्कार वेलकम टू दिस एडिशन ऑफ द इंडिया फाउंडेशन पॉडकास्ट दिस एडिशन ऑफ द इंडिया फाउंडेशन पॉडकास्ट फीचर्स द आई एफ डायलॉग विद मिस्टर दीप प्रसाद द थीम ऑफ दिस पॉडकास्ट इज क्वांटम कंप्यूटिंग मेटा मटेरियल्स एंड आर्टिफिशियल इंटेलिजेंस लेट्स बिगिन गुड इवनिंग टू मिस्टर दीप प्रसाद एंड टू ऑल दोज प्रेजेंट इट इज माई प्लेजर टू bring you a very interesting consideration on uh, some of the most momentous developments that are taking place in science and technology today uh, certain revelations have come forth which were not even suspected uh, 20 years ago and they modify our vision of the universe of reality and of ourselves i would like to ask uh, a young and very forward looking cutting edge Indian scientists and technologists in Canada to uh, tell us a little bit about himself and what he's doing and what he thinks the importance and the significance of it are for the world and for India as well so deep uh, deep with deep uh, welcome can you please tell us a little bit about yourself uh, from your childhood i believe you were born in ranchi and how were you uh, essentially brought into that uh, very uh, esoteric realm of uh, new science and technology sure uh, first of all it's an honor and pleasure to be here kong thank you and thank you to the whole group for inviting me to give this talk um i was born in ranchi in 1995 uh to two you know very loving parents uh, my dad and his side they're all iitians um he's an itk i think 88 batch and uh he was always a very hardcore technologist um so when we first moved uh we came to the silicon valley where i spent a lot of my childhood growing up and watching him uh in software and technology entrepreneurship so i started getting an interest uh, at a pretty young age at to as to you know how it works how to build a business how to um the the value of products and customers and growing that and then we moved to um British Columbia in Canada where he continued to work on his business and then at this point through and through I was very very interested in science and of course science fiction as well um, as any kid would uh and so somewhere along the lines I especially got very interested in quantum mechanics especially when i first got into it uh i was 12 years old i did not know the math and did i was only interested in the philosophical implications um and then eventually university rolled around and i ended up going to the university of toronto for uh engineering and while i was there i kept my passion alive for tech entrepreneurship i ended up joining uh the first uh engineering uh, sort of hatchery that they had created and this was an incubator for your own companies tried out my own uh, sort of hardware startup while still in school and during this entire time in university um i was constantly interested and engaged in what i would say is um uh, i guess intellectual maybe distractions since it wasn't directly related to my studies but I kept reading up on on physics uh, theoretical physics specifically um I built a large network of scientists and entrepreneurs around the world 
while I was here. And then at some point, last internship before I graduated, I was hired to be an AI, artificial intelligence engineer at the Royal Bank of Canada. That's where I got to really get my hands uh, dirty with um, building and, and prototyping and testing artificial intelligence tools, specifically around natural language processing. Um, and very exciting. It was a fantastic experience. And, you know, they had given me a return offer to be um, leading the artificial intelligence division at Wealth Management in, in the Toronto uh, chapter at Royal Wing of Canada. So that was a job that I ended up taking them up on for a little while. But keep in mind that in the back of my head, I was still very obsessed with uh, theoretical physics. And um, I was at sort of like a, let's say an existential um, road where I liked how high paying and stable this job was, but I wanted to work on something, um, I guess, much more, even more difficult, um, much more esoteric, as you uh, said. And so at this point, I had discovered a field out of just curiosity, I wondered, is there a field that intersects between two of my passions, quantum mechanics and artificial intelligence? So one day I looked up quantum artificial intelligence and I found that part there, that it was a real field of research. And one of the, uh, and it was a subset of this overarching field called quantum computing. Um, and so I started learning about it. And around the time that I started my job at RBC, I'd come across this opportunity at the Creative Destruction Labs, which was the world's first quantum computing incubator. So I ended up um, joining that incubator. And uh, in that incubator, I got to learn a lot about quantum computing. They um, give you training by the world's top quantum computing scientists and uh, the top quantum computing engineers, and they have partnerships with the, uh, the first quantum computing companies in the world. So it was just, you know, diving in uh, feet first, and uh, I never looked back. So, um, yeah. Well, uh, that's a very good background, but can you tell us, uh, for a relatively lay audience, uh, in not too long a, a sentence, what exactly can define quantum computing as opposed to the computing that we all know about. Because we have all heard in school and in university, and sometimes we have even been involved with the study of quantum mechanics. In fact, it's almost inevitable. But quantum computing, how exactly do you define it? Because remember, two years ago, there were still papers by scientists claiming that quantum computing was an impossibility. And now we hear that the Chinese have it, the Americans have it, then you name it. So please tell us a little more about it. Happily. Um, in the early 1900s, starting with Max Planck, when he realized that black body radiation, uh, when he found uh, formulas to solve it, it was the first hints of what's, what we call now as quantization, that at the lowest uh, energy scales, um, you have what's called the uh, quantization of energy. We used to believe that quantum states can take on a continuous range. Then fast forward six years later, and Einstein uh, discovers a formula for the photoelectric effect. And that was when he officially um, defined this idea of quantization using Planck's constant. And of course, he won a Nobel Prize for this. Um, fast forward uh, about a decade or so, really two decades later, 
And we had an entirely new field of physics known as quantum physics that described the physics of the small. The, the physics that you and I are used to um, is now called classical physics. So if I drop a pen in front of me, if I throw something against the wall or a projectile, all of these things are calculated using classical physics, which basically maps to the world of billions and trillions of atoms. The macroscopic world behaves in a way that we have an intuition for, right? Eventually, every child learns to walk and move their body and pick up an object and figure out, is this going to be heavy or not? These are all based on classical physics. However, when you look um, at the microscopic scale, when you look under a microscope, we see that the world um, of atoms follows a completely different behavior, um, which is quantum mechanics. So what quantum computers do is they leverage quantum physics to process information. It's purely based on quantum mechanical information processing, whereas the computers we're used to today are based on classical physics, the physics that we already have a very strong intuition for. In 1982, Richard Feynman uh, proposed this um, machine. So he said a very famous line now in quantum computing, which is that uh, nature is quantum mechanical, God damn it. So if you want to simulate it, you need a quantum mechanical machine. And so that was the day that you know quantum computing was born when he published his paper, because the ability to simulate quantum mechanical systems is um, very, very difficult with today's computers. And after a certain size, it becomes impossible to simulate. So it became very prudent to build these quantum computing machines. Now, here's the difficult part about these machines. Any quantum mechanical system you have will collapse. There's something called wave function collapse. They will stop behaving quantum mechanically if you interfere with it. So they're highly sensitive systems. And so if you have a computer that's quantum mechanical in nature, you need to protect from noise. You can't interfere with it. So it may, becomes a very difficult engineering problem. Um, and that's why you know a lot of people believe that they would never exist, especially in the late uh, 20th century and even early 21st century. But then the first quantum computing computers came online where they started performing some basic information processes and now we're at the stage where quantum computers are neck and neck with the world's most powerful supercomputers, where some of them are actually beating uh, supercomputers for very uh, specific tasks. And that was the quantum supremacy announcement by Google, where they were able to generate a random pattern, random number generation pattern that would be, um, it would take thousands of times longer for the most powerful supercomputer to replicate. And then you have different kinds of quantum computing hardware now, different ways of making these quantum mechanical systems and computing on them. China, for example, their announcements have been around something called boson sampling. So it's using light to do computations, whereas Google's computers are using these superconducting wires. Um, but yeah, that's where we're at right now, where we have these metaphorically small error-prone quantum computers but we know that they're working. And what we're very interested in now is how can we uh, build these for useful industrial applications? Is it then true that uh, you can build a quantum computer that would be infinitely small 
uh, in comparison with the very large uh, supercomputers, the craze and others that we know about. I really love that question. So infinitely small is a relative uh, concept, right? So eventually, you know, we, we will be able to minimize the size of quantum computers. Uh, right now, the infrastructure is very large. Often it'll take up half a room. It'll be like 10 feet by you know, uh, 15 feet. Um, however, as people get better in engineering, um, especially with photonic implementations, eventually, and also something called nitrogen vacancy-based uh, computations, where people are looking at using diamonds and uh, impurities that are introduced into the diamond um, to do quantum computations, because it takes on this quantum mechanical state, and then you can affect it with laser beams. So as you shrink down those systems, you could have some of those powerful computers just this small, right? In, in a bunch of, in a diamond, in un, unassuming looking crystal. So eventually we will get to a point where relatively speaking is very small. We know that this is possible from a physics and engineering standpoint because the human body has already figured it out, right? Our cellular structures are so small yet they're so powerful in terms of computation. So we know that there's a long way to go for minimizing the size of our quantum computers. But when we say infinite, I think of it in a literal sense. And um, we have a physics limit with how small these, anything we can build can go, which is at the Planck scale. Um, we uh, probe energy scales in, depending on how much energy you have, the smaller scale you can probe of physics. So in CERN, uh, the scales that we're probing by colliding these particles against each other, those scales get smaller and smaller, the more energy we're putting in. However, um, if we wanted to probe the Planck scale, the smallest possible unit we can think of of space-time, uh, the amount of energy that would need is the difference in energy between us today and the Greeks. So we're a very, very long way away from probing sub-Planck scale physics, and uh, it's entirely unknown what happens at the truly infinite small scales. This brings us to the fact that uh, quantum computing could make artificial intelligence infinitely more powerful. Here I have a philosophical question for you, because as you know, there is a debate about how intelligent is artificial intelligence. In the sense, is it truly intelligence in the biological or human sense, as some uh, scientists claim, or is it, as other, as other researchers say, um, sort of a very different process, basically, which uh, apes intelligence, but which is not truly intelligent. How do you evaluate that debate? So it's a very um, prudent philosophical problem, which is there's something called the symbolic grounding problem. Um, in artificial intelligence and computer science, the symbolic grounding problem goes like this. Every word, and, and you can try this at home, if you were to go on Wikipedia and you just started with a random word or definition or link that you're interested in, and you kept pressing the reference links in Wikipedia, and you just kept going from one reference page to another to another, eventually you would end up back to the same page that you started with. Even if it took you like 100 years, you'll get there. Um, this is true for words too. If I started defining words like the sentence, um, this person is in a restaurant, and I took that sentence and I tried to give it meaning to a robot, I would have to tell the robot what the word this means 
this is this person is what that means this person is in a restaurant what that means and then i would have to define what a restaurant is a restaurant is a building then a building is this and then etc cetera, etc cetera. and as i keep doing that eventually i would circle back to the sentence i started with in the words i started with so our definitions become circular they become problematic in so doing so so that is symbolic grounding problem which is how do you uh, circumvent this circular logic in giving meanings and definitions to words? We understand that humans give meaning to everything, but how will robots subscribe meaning? Are they really understanding? You know, can we tell the difference between replicating knowledge and just true understanding? And right now we're at the um, we're at such a nascent field in philosophy that that philosophers don't even agree on what it means to understand. Uh, knowledge in the first place. So it becomes difficult to assess whether in, uh, artificial intelligence, even if they um, are very intelligent, they know a lot, it's very difficult for us to understand if they understand. And uh, maybe they're going to be asking the same thing about us one day. Yeah, that's extremely interesting uh, as a reflection because it brings us back to Vedanta and Buddhist uh, psychology. Uh, and the very meaning of meaning, you know, because again, meaning uh, is in itself a very problematic term. You know, meaning can mean the use that we make of something, which gives it meaning, and it's only meaning because there is something else. Otherwise, nothing by itself means anything. So anyway, we do. Absolutely. Yeah, well said. Brilliant. It's a, it's a very interesting thing, but I suspect what's happening now is that computers are beginning, in some ways, to go ahead of us because they are not embarrassed by these existential questions. They can go literally to the heart of the matter, which sometimes uh, leaves us uh, completely uh, in a sense of, in a condition of uselessness because they no longer need human beings to get what needs to be done, you know, to do what needs to be done. Absolutely. And, you know, we're in for a hierarchy of intelligences because one of the things that extract, attracted me uh, to quantum computing was. Uh, there was a lecture by Seth Lloyd. He's one of the godfathers of quantum artificial intelligence. Um, and Seth Lloyd made, up, made a great example. He said that if you have a quantum computer generating patterns and you have a regular computer uh, um, and they're both using artificial intelligence systems to generate patterns and decode patterns, the patterns that the artificial intelligence running on a quantum computer create will be impossible to learn for the normal computer and the normal artificial intelligence trained on the computers we know today. So you'll eventually have this hierarchy of intelligence systems where generally speaking for many tasks, the quantum artificial intelligence will be impossible to catch up to. And so that's going to be interesting too. I want to bring you to the topic uh, of one of your uh, other fields of research, uh, which is uh, metamaterials. Uh, metamaterials were sometimes called ultramaterials. They have very special and bewildering properties. Can you tell us a little bit more about metamaterials? Absolutely. Um, in, in nature, imagine, uh, try, to go, try to go through the following visualization. When you have rocks in a river, right, you have big enough rocks, the water goes around the rocks, and they change the path a little bit. You've obstructed their path. Now, let's say that you put up, um, this, is, this is the difference between a metamaterial and a natural material. Imagine if those water waves, the river, 
is electromagnetism of any part of the spectrum, whether it's visible light or uh, UV um, or X-rays. It, as long as uh, you're uh, visualizing it like a wave, imagine if you wanted to create very specific patterns in the river. So you sharpened the rocks, you sharpened and added 10 more rocks, and then you put them aligned in one way, or you made this intricate pattern. And now the water is moving in a very intricate pattern. That is what a metamaterial does, where it purposely directs electromagnetic radiation in a way that is useful for us much like you would change the path of a river uh, for your own liking. Now, metamaterials are all around us. Uh, and um, a metamaterial is something that is, generally speaking, unnatural. So we make very beautiful, intricate patterns to direct electromagnetic radiation. Um, one of the, I guess, one of my favorite examples is the idea of using terahertz um, to like terahertz frequencies and guiding those processes in metamaterials. Um, another very interesting thing is that actually my absolute most favorite application, which doesn't quite exist yet, is the ability to make metamaterials at macroscopic scales with negative refractive indices. So I'll unpack that. Um, all of the objects that we see, if you have a glass of water or a coffee cup and you put a straw through the glass of water and you see how light will sort of distort the image, right? Um, all of that is based on something called a positive refractive index where light is bent away from the normal. If you had a negative refractive index where light bends the other way, that object becomes invisible in the Harry Potter sense where you can no longer see what's there. Um, and so there have been very interesting um, breakthroughs in negative refractive index metamaterials in the last 10 years for different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum, not for the visible part, but for things like radio waves. We can actually use negative refractive indices at nanoscales. For example, at my alma mater, University of Toronto, they were able to do this uh, with radio waves and bend it away from the normal um, in the opposite direction. So there's a lot of research going into scaling these materials and um, making it useful for the visible spectrum. So one day we'll have technologies that are truly invisible. And I think that's very fascinating. Yes, what one hears is that uh, technically some metamaterials would have the property of invisibility of indestructibility, having a memory, which means always regaining their original shape, and uh, also being uh, probably, uh, you know, capable of all sorts of uh, uses that we can't even imagine. Uh, for example, uh, changing sizes uh, dramatically because of uh, their extraordinary flexibility. But are they alloys or are they actually pure substances? They can be combination. You can have very, very complex uh, alloy-based metamaterials. You could have something that's pure. Uh, like, for example, there, the terahertz um, metamaterial that I was referencing, the ones that we've built, some of them are just pure graphene-based, right? Just one allotrope of carbon. But uh, you can have like a combination of germanium, for example. So it, it really depends. Um, there are even, like, for example, butterflies, right? There are some butterflies that have um, their skins uh, and you can consider it as a type of metamaterial. 
where it diffracts light in a very specific way to replicate a pattern. So even nature uh, does, does these things. You know, now you hear about metamaterials more and more in the media because of the reports by scientists such as Dr. Eric Davis from the Texas Institute of Advanced Research headed by uh, some very prominent scientists. And what they're talking about are metamaterials that were actually recovered, not uh, built, but recovered uh, in very specific uh, circumstances. In other words, uh, certain craft that crashed or landed on Earth, and somehow some of these materials were uh, preserved and are now being studied. And there was a presentation to Congress, uh, to the US Congress, made recently by Dr. Eric Davies. So that tells us that metamaterials are actually being used somewhere by someone, and we are beginning to learn how to do that. So I know that you actually uh, made a presentation about uh, how to uh, detect technosignatures of uh, alien uh, substances or alien life forms through uh, quantum computing. Uh, how exactly would you uh, explain that? Okay, so as we, you know, the 20th century brought us radio waves, right? Radio communication, thanks to guys like Tesla and Marconi. And uh, all of this is based on classical physics. Our communication that we use today is not, um, of course, they're quantum mechanical, but they're not processing information quantum mechanically with quantum systems. Um, what we're building today, one of the quantum adjacent technologies to quantum computers is the ability to communicate quantum information from one place to another. And here's what I mean by this. Um, as I'm speaking to you, my voice uh, is being conveyed using phonons, which is the sound carrier for, I mean, the carrier for, for sound. Then that gets converted uh, into electrical energy. And that energy is brought through a wire, physically transported, transmitted to a satellite, then it comes back to you. Um, and, then, and then your computer is you know, transporting that current and then converting it to sounds and then, and then you can hear me. The, the, the point to note here is that you could physically take that information and physically put it through these wires and move it just like you would with water. But remember what I said about quantum mechanical systems, where the second you interfere with it, you've lost your quantum information. It's no longer behaving quantum mechanically. So if I stored information in a quantum mechanical system and I wanted to literally transport it to you, physically bring it to you, I can't do that if I can't touch it and uh, put it through a wire. So the paradox is how can I transmit quantum information from one place to another? Now, 40 years ago, somebody uh, very intelligent invented, actually 50 years ago now, invented um, quantum teleportation protocols. So the idea is that if I took my quantum mechanical system and I entangled it with another quantum mechanical system and I gave you one half of it, and so you kept it using very advanced engineering, you kept that quantum system safe and sound, on your end. Now we have two entangled pairs of the same system. And if I took a measurement and I, and I wanted to send you my quantum information, what I would do is purposely uh, destroy the collapse away function, read the classical measurements from my collapse, 
send it to you through classical channels, which are bounded by the speed of light. And then you would recreate, you would perform the right quantum unitary actions to recreate the original quantum information that I had over here in Canada. Now that quantum information gets transported instantaneously through a medium that we don't understand. We don't know how quantum information is managed to go from one place instantaneously. But uh, because if we want to communicate, I still have to send you classical information through a classical channel. This is why we can't exploit instantaneous quantum entanglement for communicating information, but we can use it to communicate quantum information nonetheless. And so what my research was, my presentation to the European Astronomical Society was, let's assume that given the fact that we're developing quantum computers and quantum communication technologies, that a more advanced civilization near us would also be developing it or expecting that we will have developed it, which means that all the information that, um, that the SETI radars or any, any electromagnetic signals we're picking up in space, they may actually represent the classical side of quantum information. Um, and so what I looked at was, can we use computers today that are inspired by quantum computing to use quantum inspired algorithms to figure out and search for these signals uh, rather than expecting that it was based on, you know, using classical computers to process them. That was uh, what that research is about. But you mentioned Eric Davis and uh, techno signatures. So um, extraterrestrial techno signatures or so-called alien techno signatures, they don't necessarily need to come in the form of communication. They um, a techno signature, uh, for anyone who may not know, is a signature of uh, that represents usage of technology by a non-human civilization. So a signature could be anything even more physical. It could be a recovered, let's say, um, aircraft that you know shows up and it's a transient phenomena. That could be a techno signature as well. So when people like Eric Davis and uh, Dr. Gary Nolan and Dr. Jacques Vallée, they do all this very interesting research in searching for physical techno signatures on Earth, where they're looking for these artifacts that could be uh, truly alien artifacts that don't originate um, from man. Yes, actually, uh, let's face it, quantum entanglement gets rid of space-time in the sense that there is complete instantaneity. There is no longer any time lapse between emission and reception. So that's the right. beauty of it because you are back to a literally Vedantic uh, vision of the universe, you know, in which everything is together. There is no separation. So everything is one. That, that's the beauty of it. Yeah, I like that you say that because um, it's conjectured that the entire universe is entangled, that truly everything is one from a physics perspective, it's a fair point. So uh, what you're doing in Canada, obviously a number of other countries are racing to get to, essentially to get ahead of others. By the way, both the US government and the Chinese government have confirmed in the last few days that they are using artificial intelligence to observe, track and analyze UFOs, now called UAPs. This is official. They have been doing it, but they are doing it better and better which shows us something is afoot. Now, with regard to India, what is your perception of India's situation with regard to this uh, technological advanced research? Is there a 
do you think India has fallen behind? Because one of my friends, uh, Rajiv Malhotra, has conducted a number of uh, interviews uh, with people concerned with the subject. And his conclusion is that India is at risk of being left behind among the countries that do not master, control, or own the technology and the necessary resources for the technology. Are you able to give an assessment of that? So when we look at the convergence of quantum computing, artificial intelligence, and unidentified aerial phenomena that the US and China and um, other countries are starting to study, um, Russia has been studying them for decades. We see that the convergence of the three lead to an exponential technological gap between countries who are investing resources and who aren't. Um, one of those technologies alone can change the entire economic and power distribution. If you combine all three of them, it's game over. And that is exactly what countries like the US and China are doing. Um, and so I'll, I'll address uh, unidentified aerial phenomena a little bit um, more just in detail for context. We have these objects that are now confirmed by the Pentagon to be um, essentially capable of five characteristics that combined together are currently considered impossible by the known laws of physics, by general relativity, special relativity, and quantum physics. The best engineers on the planet have no idea how these unidentified aerial phenomena can fly or function in the first place. Uh, those five observables in no particular order are hypersonic uh, velocities with no sonic boom, transmedium travel, so the ability to go from air to water to space with no change to their out external body. And the third one is instantaneous acceleration and deacceleration. When you're traveling at 33 to 88 times the speed of sound, which is how fast some of these objects fly, and they stop instantaneously, they're violating the conservation of momentum, which is a violation of the conservation of energy. And of course, that's impossible. You can't violate the conservation of energy, which means that what they're really doing is using physics that we don't understand. We use classical physics to describe these aerospace vehicles to, to explain flight physics. It's all based on uh, known physics. And so there's two more. Um, one is low observability, the ability to be for example, I have a colleague um, who uh, briefed Congress on the subject on unidentified aerial phenomena. He was uh, featured on 60 Minutes. And one of the incidences that him and his flight squadron had come up with was they were flying and their radar was registering. And under IR, the infrared spectrum, they were able to uh, see different objects, especially their radar systems were returning that there was these massive there would be massive objects in front of them, but they couldn't see anything with the naked eye. And of course, sometimes they could see these objects directly physically, but that's low observability where you're seeing something that's for all intents and purposes invisible to the naked eye, yet you can still detect it with advanced sensors. And uh, of course that ties into the whole metamaterial um, discussion that I was talking about. And then the fifth one is the most peculiar to me, it's the most mind-boggling, and it has the highest potential, should it be replicated by any country, to completely change the power balance, and that is anti-gravity. The ability to maintain positive lift without flight surfaces or propulsion signatures or any known propulsion system that's based on combustion. Elon Musk rockets 
Um, I'll give you an example. So I looked at a famous case that the Pentagon recently declassified. It's called the Tic Tac, uh, the 2004 U.S. Nimitz event. Um, that I looked at the, I did the calculations for the acceleration and the velocity that it reached. Now, if you were to replicate that, that same acceleration velocity that it reached in U.S. airspace above the sea level, and you wanted to use Elon Musk's SpaceX Falcon 9 rockets, you would need 6,000 of them in one place to replicate that. It's, uh, and it would create such a massive sonic boom, such a crazy exhaust trail. And so you have to wonder who is building these technologies. Um, the, it's funny because the U.S. blames China and Russia, and they are both, uh, and they are both asking these sort of questions: who who is building it? Right? They're asking the U.S. They're pointing fingers, you know, but nobody has any real answers. And so, um, when it comes to India, what I see is immense intellectual capital. There is so much untapped potential for quantum computing, for artificial intelligence, for the study of these unidentified aerial phenomena. And I am concerned that seeing the lack of uh, resources, both financially and intellectually in these fields is going to leave India behind when it has no reason to. It has uh, like a, a such hard people, right? There's no reason to. Uh, there's so many talented engineers. There's so many people who could figure out how these objects work how to build better quantum computers and better artificial intelligence systems. That's been my observation over the last several years. Many of the Indian scientists are very eminent in their fields, but they can be quite conservative. And they uh, don't always want to venture where they believe no man has gone before. So that sometimes is uh, a weakness, which comes from a you know, fairly rigidly structured uh, educational uh, cursus. So, this was a wonderful, very wide-ranging and incredibly precise uh, expose. And I also want to congratulate you for your ability to give very simple examples and to uh, make it poetic and understandable to all through vivid images. That's a rare gift. And it's wonderful in terms of pedagogy, in terms of being able to teach and get people interested. Because otherwise, we all know that the abstract definition of those concepts is really uh, very hard to grasp. So illustrations and uh, examples are very much needed, as in mythology. So on this uh, note, I will uh, thank you again for making yourself available from uh, Vancouver <laughs> at a very early time of the day. And I will request uh, our uh, fellows at India Foundation to uh, thank you and give the vote of thanks. And of course, I also wish to thank the India Foundation for making this dialogue possible, which I'm sure will attract a lot of attention when it will be on the social media. Thank, thank you, you so much. Um, it was an honor and pleasure. A very fun time. And thank you for all the questions. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the India Foundation podcast. Do like, share and subscribe the India Foundation channel.